this morning. I pray that you uh, just show us something new, show us something fresh. Maybe for some of us, it's the very first time we'll hear these things. For some of us, we've heard these things, and it'll be a reminder. For some of us, it will be the, 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 the 150th time we've heard it, but we've hear, we hear it different. So God, that's how you work. That's how your spirit works, is that you give each of us exactly what we need when we need it. God, you supply, you, you, you are the one who disuses what I say to, to, to permeate and to take root in people's hearts. And so that's what we ask this morning. Father, pray that we put away any distractions that we might have. And I know there's going to be some people this morning checking underneath their leg. The Titans score, it doesn't matter. They're going to lose anyway. So, Father, I just pray that we're able to put that stuff aside and what it is we're going to eat for lunch and all those. And just for a few minutes this morning, take listen of something that can absolutely wreck our lives and change us and transform us in such a good way. And, God, not only will it transform us, it will transform our homes and our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our world. Father, thank you for grace. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. Guys, I don't have to say it. I'm going to state a real obvious thing. We live in a crazy world. Am I right? Guys, just in 2018, I'm going to go through some things. I'm going to ask for a little crowd participation, so just kind of bear with me. I know some of you may be the first time at church, and you're like, oh, this guy's going to ask me to participate. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that. But what I do want to do is I just want to kind of throw out some things that have happened just in 2018. And, guys, we have two and a half months left, and so who knows what the rest of the year is going to hold. So let me give you a little example. Here's what I want you to do after each thing I'm going to tell you about. I just want you to say... That's crazy, okay? So let me just give you an example. 2018 Nashville traffic. That's crazy, okay? How many of you are in this every day? I'm sorry. I pray for you. I drive 1.3 miles to my office, and it is great. Uh, the biggest traffic I have is trying to get in and out of Hardee's. So, um, but that's what I want to do. So here we go. I want to introduce you guys to a series of things, a series of people. And again, all these things are 2018. This is Don Gorski. Don Gorski is from Wisconsin. He is 64 years old, and this year, earlier in the year, he ate his 30,000th Big Mac. And the way this breaks down is he has eaten approximately two Big Macs a day for 46 years. That's crazy. This is Private Shamika Burridge. Maybe you've uh, heard her story. She lost her ear in a near-fatal accident, uh, and the Army surgeons stepped up to make her a new ear. And here's what's amazing. They didn't just make her a prosthetic ear. They took her own cartilage and planted it. And I didn't show you this picture because I didn't know where everybody's at. On like, I love it, so you're going to want to look up this picture. But they planted it inside of her forearm, and her ear grew in her form. So if you look up the picture, you can see the actual outline of her ear growing inside of her arm. And then this year in Texas, they took that out and put it back on and you would never know she lost an ear. That's crazy. So this is Dylan McWilliams and he has seen more adventure in the last year than most of us hope to see in a lifetime. Guys, in the same year, he was attacked by a bear in Colorado while hiking. Then, within the same year, he was shark-bitten while boogie-boarding in Hawaii. And he says, I'm still not going to give up on outdoorsmanship. That's crazy. 
Guys, after a years and years long feud, pop stars Katy Perry and Taylor Swift did the impossible. They made up. Swift posted on her Instagram this shot of a card who was sent by her by Perry. Did you know this? There was an actual olive branch inside the card where Katie says, I am deeply sorry. And now they have become best friends again. That's crazy. As you think you've had a bad date or two, some of you are already laughing because you know who this is. Well, I'm going to guess that your experience pales into comparison with a guy in Phoenix. This guy went on a single date with her, okay? This is Jacqueline Addies. He went on one date, and over the next three months leading to her arrest, she, will say, stalked, tried to encourage a second date. I don't know what she was trying to do, but get this. She sent him 65,000 harassing texts in three months. Let me do the math for you. Guys, that's 725-plus texts a day. That's crazy. She's crazy. (laughs) I love this one. This is my favorite. This is Gilberto Escamilla, and he is, or I should say was, uh, a, a, an employee, a kitchen employee at the Hester Juvenile Detention Center in Texas. And so everybody loves, in fact, this last week I participated, everybody loves hashtag Fajita Friday, right? All right you guys are all in for fajitas. Here's the problem. The detention center that he worked at doesn't do a Fajita Friday. But for eight or nine years, he was ordering fajita supplies to do a fajita Friday at the juvenile detention center, which he worked. They didn't do it. So here's what was happening. He was putting this order in every week, every week, every week for eight or nine years, and then taking the fajita stuff home and making like neighborhood you know, meals for fajitas. He was sentenced this year to 50 years in prison because his fajita Friday extravaganza had eclipsed $1.2 million dollars of stolen fajita goods out of the detention center. That's crazy. Let me give you a couple more, guys, just to switch gears. You guys realize that 73% of Americans are in debt? Average household income debt in America exceeds $200,000. 62,000 of that, on average, is consumer debt. While the median income is 58000 and a quarter of America, 25% of Americans, make less than $10 an hour. It's crazy. 21.4 million people are dealing with substance abuse disorder. Opioids at an all-time high, killing people daily. It's crazy. 4.5 million people worldwide. Guys, this one breaks my heart. 4.5 million people worldwide are trapped and forced into some form of sexual exploitation. Guys, just in the U.S., on average, every two minutes, a child, by definition, 13 years old on average, is bought or sold for sex. This is in our country. Human trafficking is the second fastest growing criminal industry behind the drug industry. That's crazy. Just shy of 600,000 people in the U.S. are homeless. 
meaning that they're living on the streets, they're living in their car or in a shelter. 84,000 of them are considered chronically, meaning that they have lived for longer than at least one year in those conditions. 50% of them are over the age of 50. A quarter of them, 600,000, a quarter of them are children. 8% of them have served our country. And 110,000 in the LGBTQT youth are homeless. It's crazy. Christianity, valuing church is at a decline. You guys realize that less than 20% of Americans attend church even occasionally. Only 6% of churches, which I love this because we're growing, but 6% of churches nationwide consider themselves to have grown at all in the last five years. By 2050, the church population will be less than half of what it was considered in 1990. It's crazy. And guys, I could go on and on and on with ear-growing, McDonald's eating, but I can also go on and on with things that would break our hearts because the fact is we live in a crazy world. So what do we do with this? As Jesus followers, as, as people who are trying to make an impact and an imprint, and how do we process this stuff? How do we respond to this stuff? How do we help with these things? How do we navigate such delicate but also pressing issues? And how do we somehow put our minds around and our hands to and our hearts to this broad scope of needs of so many? We begin to ask, what's my role? I'm not a teacher, I'm not an influencer, I'm not a pastor, I'm not, you know, I mean, what's my role in this? I'm just kind of an ordinary guy, you know, I turn a wrench, or I'm a medical person, or I just teach kids, or whatever your, your, your job title is, I'm an administrative assistant, I mean, what is my role in these things? What is my calling in these things? And I believe that the only thing that's going to make a difference in a crazy world is crazy grace. It's going to be a grace that is accepted and received by us, but it's going to be a grace that we in turn go to distribute to those of us who might need a little extra. We're going to have to become receivers and distributors. Here's what I'm saying is that the greatest missionary tool is a transformed life. See, I think sometimes we... we, we are quick to lose hope, and we, we go, I just don't know how to make a dent. And the way that we're going to make a dent is we're going to allow grace to transform our lives in such a way that people will begin to see our lives and begin to have hope because of what they see in us. See, the greatest missionary tool is not going to be some fancy pamphlet. It's not going to be some church program. It's not going to be a slick Sunday morning production. It's not going to be any of those things. The way that people are going to begin to get in touch with the hope that Jesus provides is when they begin to see that we have become transformed people, and that's what grace does. And that transformation is not just the receiving of it, it's also the extending it. See, engaging our culture, no matter how crazy it is and how crazy it gets, I don't know where it's going, will require us, you and I, people who claim Jesus, it's going to require us to be grace-filled people who love God the way, or love people the way God loves people. See, I think we as a church, we have a unique opportunity we have an opportunity to witness to the world God's grace. And while it's not ours necessarily to, to give as if we have ownership, but it is ours to share, it's ours to showcase, it's ours to distribute the message that gets people in touch, we get to witness to God's grace by how we live out grace. And here's what I want us to understand in this series is that once we understand what grace is, then we can begin to live out 
It will begin to spread and permeate through all areas of our lives. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the next few weeks just looking at 1 Corinthians. So starting today, just read through. We're not going to give you a guide. It's not that long. Read it once. Read it five times. Just spend the next five weeks just reading through 1 Corinthians. And we don't have time to go through the entire uh, letter, but we're going to pick out some themes where Paul has these amazing themes of grace that he made part of his ministry, that he made part of his church planning, that he made part of his personal relationships, that he made part of his own life. And so the goal for the series is this. We're going to come to grips We're not going to bury our head in the sand. We're going to come to grips with where we are and who we are. We're going to understand what it means to participate and connect to people gracefully. And let's be honest, we don't always connect to people gracefully. And so we want to begin to say, how is it that I navigate as a follower of Jesus, someone who claims Christianity, claims to be loved by and given the grace of God? How do do we begin to connect and relate to people being graceful? And then, how do we begin to give people hope? And so let's start with the basic question. What is grace? See, all throughout Paul's writings to various churches, you're going to see this today just in 1 Corinthians, but he reminds people often. He reminds them over and over, don't forget the grace you have received. Don't forget the grace in which you were brought in. Don't forget the grace in which you were called. Don't forget the grace in which you were invited. And he says, and don't forget to extend grace in a culture that doesn't always give it back, that doesn't always appreciate it, doesn't always get it. And he especially does this in Corinth. That's why why we chose 1 Corinthians. He's especially gives these massive themes of grace to Corinth. And what you need to know about Corinth is this, is that Paul goes into a city that, that has nothing like this. He goes in and he plants a church, a new church. And it's not like he's the second, third, or fourth church in town and they needed one. He goes into this completely foreign place and he plants a church. They don't even really have a basis for the Jewish culture there. So he walks into a completely pagan place and he begins to to preach and to share and to gather people in this thing called a church and he begins to, to say, listen, I want you to know who Jesus is. And so here he walks into this city state, this Greco Roman culture that was known for its wealth. In fact, if you look it up historically, you'll see that Corinth was over the top wealthy. It was the place where everyone wanted to go, it was kind of like Vegas. It was known for its trade, but it was also built on slinging sex as a product. And you see this, again, throughout the writing. You're going to see that that it, it even made its way into church. It made its way into some of these sacred places and sacred grounds because they didn't know any different. They had grown up in a culture where all of these things were normal. Idolatry. Their primary god was Aphrodite, who's the goddess of love. And so if you begin to do some research and figure out kind of what that's about, you'll understand why. Sex was no big deal, and they would just sling this, and they would use people and abuse people for their own personal gain and own personal pleasure. And then on top of that, it was comprised of this melting pot. You had people from all over. You had Greeks and Romans and other Gentiles. You had a few Jews, but not many. And Paul, in that setting, it's a Vegas, it's a New York, in that setting, he rolls up in there and plants a church. And all of a sudden, he begins to teach in such a way that is going to be countercultural. So if he comes in, and he doesn't start with this foundation of grace, if he just comes in and says, 
You've been living in sin, and you've got X amount of times to change, and here's what it's going to require. If he comes in preaching this hard-nosed truth and iron-fisted, that the truth is the truth, and while all those things might be true, that the truth is the truth, and there's responsibility and there's expectation, but he knew that wasn't the starting place. He knew that the starting place was going to be, do you know that you are loved by God and you have been given grace? And so he begins to formulate this, this, even in the midst of major struggle, even in the midst of church struggle. See, because as new members of the church, as these new believers in Christ, they brought with them into the church, and you'll see this if you read through, they brought into the church their pagan and cultural influences. They brought in their idol ceremonies. They brought into the church promiscuity. And so needless to say, if you begin to see Corinth for what it is and the Corinth church for what it is, you're going to see that grace is for sure required. But what you see is, is that grace is exactly what Paul brings. And so 1 Corinthians is a letter. It's not a textbook to be studied. It's a, it's a letter where Paul begins to pour out his heart to a church, to people, that he dearly loved, but he also deeply believed in. And so here's what he says about grace. Start in verse 1. He says, Paul, he introduces himself, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I love that right out of the gate he shows them grace. And you go, hold up, I didn't see the word grace in there. It's subtle, but it's powerful. See, Paul introduces himself, look at this, he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. So let me just give you the bottom line before I give you the background. The bottom line was this, for Paul, grace wasn't a theory. See, we think grace is a theory. I've heard of it, but I don't really know what it is. For Paul, grace was an encounter with the living God. You go, hold up, you're getting all that from here? Let me just kind of walk you back. For those that aren't familiar with, with Paul, Paul was a Jew. And, and then, back in those days, he was known as Saul. And he was on the fast track to becoming kind of a Jew among Jews. He was on the fast track to become a Pharisee, which is just a big fancy word for a supreme law keeper. Like you had Jews and then you had Pharisees. And it was kind of top of the totem pole. And he is on the fast track. He is, he's climbing every rung as quickly. He's this young gun who has all the passion and all the zeal. He's stern and he's over the top and they love that. That's the makeup of a Pharisee. They love people who are stern and people who will have that ability to stare down the nose. And this is, this is Saul. And so in Acts chapter 9, we see that Saul has been commissioned by the highest court. He's been commissioned, and he has an assignment, and he has all the legal documentation he needs to go and to stomp out the movement of Jesus. He has all the legal documentation to do whatever he wants. And, it, and I'm talking like this is a take-no-prisoners kind of mentality. And so he's ripping families apart. He's throwing dads and moms in jail. He's persecuting Christians because his goal, his assignment, was to stomp out any hint of this new movement of Jesus. And before we come down on Saul, let's just talk a minute. Just remember that all Saul was trying to do was what? All Saul was trying to do was preserve what he thought was right and what he thought was theirs. And I wonder sometimes, 
in our eagerness and in our own passion to preserve and protect ours, that we too stop or we fail to extend grace to those who don't identify with us. Just food for thought. You can think about that as the day. But on his way, he has an encounter. That's why I say for Paul, it wasn't a theory, it was an encounter. And on his way, if you continue to read Acts chapter 9, he has an encounter with grace. It's a bad guy. It's a guy that even other Christian leaders wanted no part of at first. He has an encounter with grace that changes his trajectory. It transforms his life. It completely wrecks him. It sets him on a new path, and he encounters in that moment, he encounters forgiveness. He encounters mercy. He encounters renewal that is given by Jesus through the cross. And I love this. It changes his life, and it doesn't just change it long term. It changes his life immediately, and as a result of this, Saul changes everything. He changes even his name. So Paul now begins to preach about this grace, and he made it his mission to distribute it and to showcase that. And here's what I notice about Paul, and I also notice this about people in my life, is that many times those who have experienced the greatest measure of grace are the quickest and the fastest to extend it in the greatest measures. And so Paul becomes, because he has received what he believes this enormous amount It's a crazy amount. I mean, coming from where he came from to where God has now invited him in to be a part of what he's a part of, he looks at this and goes, this shouldn't happen. It doesn't make sense on paper. It's crazy grace. And Paul says, if if that's the God that I'm serving, then I've got to be that sort of apostle. I've got to be that sort of teacher. And here's what I noticed, that this is my story too. I begin to look, really look at the grace that God has given me. I go, man, he has been really over-the-top crazy good to me. He has given me a pass. He has given me outs. He has given me forgiveness. He has given me mercy in ways that if I told you about, I'd be ashamed of, but he does it anyway. And so he becomes this great instrument just spreading and showcasing this. And see, it was never a theory for him. It was an experience for him. It was an experience of a loving and living God, and it wrecked him, and it should wreck us. It reversed his trajectory. It moved him, and I love this. It moved him from a heart full of hate to living out a life full of love. See, when you experience this crazy grace, it makes you do a crazy thing. You begin to love. And you begin to love things that aren't like you. And you begin to love people that you don't identify with. And you, get to, you begin to love people who are hard to love. You begin to love people. So here's the thing. Paul turns his hate to love. And, and you go, hold up. This, is, this doesn't, really? Yes, this broken, rebellious, dysfunctional, hate-filled person is the very person in Acts chapter 9 on that road to Damascus that God says, no, 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 now you're going to be the person I use to share grace. So you begin to look at the New Testament. First, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, all these places. They're letters by Paul to churches that he plants, that he built on this foundation of grace. So when Paul says, and I know I probably have given you a lot just out When Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus by the will of God, 
That's a statement of grace. Then he goes on to address them. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ and called to be saints. Your version may say called to be his holy people. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and to our Lord. Here's what I want you to notice in this. He shows us this big snapshot of grace in the way he introduces himself because they would have known his story. But he also shows a snapshot of grace in the way he introduces, the way he writes his introduction to them. See, guys, this is more than just a, hey, dear church folks, I got some things I want to tell you. Look at how he greets them. Paul calls them, or a better word is this, he identifies them as saints. See, identity is important because whatever or whoever you think you are determines what you'll do. Let me put it another way. Identity determines activity. And so if you think this is who you are, then guess how you're going to act? You're going to act that way. If you think you're worthless, if you think you are less valuable, if you think you are unworthy, then you're going to act that way. But if you somehow can live into a different calling, a different identity, then you begin to act differently. And Paul calls them saints. And go, well, maybe Paul wasn't fully aware of who they were. I mean, maybe he wasn't aware that somebody was having sex with some some in-laws in church. Well, yeah, he does because he writes about it. So let's not trick ourselves into thinking that Paul doesn't know who he's writing to, right? He starts the letter in which he's going to address all of their stuff. But look how he starts. He starts by saying, you're still saints. Listen, I know about your idol worship. I know about your, your acting a fool. I know that you're crazy, but you're still saints. And he says something significant to them. Before he ever gets to some, hey, we've got to modify some behavior down here. He says, but let me, in a word, saints, let me remind you of who you are. That you were given this beautiful Precious title, not by me. You were given it by God. He says you were sanctified by Jesus. You were made holy by Jesus. And so grace gives this new identity. And grace gives the identity not based on what we've achieved, but what we've received. And he says nobody can take that away from you. You can't even take that away from you. In verse 2, again, slide back. He says you were sanctified by Jesus. And what does that mean? He says it means that don't forget I know you're a little bit off track. I know you're a little off course. I know that we've got some things to work on. But don't forget that you were set apart, that sanctified, the sainthood set you apart for God's purposes, that you were made holy by Jesus. It was a way of saying you were chosen, that God chose you. It was like God saying, now you're mine. And there's something close about that. There's something intimate about that. You're mine. I have selected you. I've picked you to be a part. And we go, but doesn't he know the profile of these people? And the answer to that is yes. We all know they're bad people. But in the process of this grace, in the process of this sanctification, as he says, in the process of this sainthood, it means that the very holiness of Jesus also becomes theirs. That the the very perfection of who Jesus is, the very righteousness of Jesus is also a part of the gift. And I'm not sure we completely get that sometimes. Because if we begin to really think about that, we'd go what? That's crazy. 
that Jesus, there's no one ever like him, that Jesus, the perfection of Jesus is shared with us. That his perfection becomes my perfection. That his holiness becomes my holiness. And we go, I can't even wrap my mind around that. That's crazy. No, that's grace. That's grace. And the reason that it doesn't make sense is because as humans, as, 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 as people, everything, everything that we do is based on what we achieve. But, but Paul says, no, the greatest things are what you receive. It's what you receive that's going to make you great. What you receive is what's going to make you righteous. And, and he says all of that in a word that you're saints. You're saints justified. There's nothing you can do to become more holy. There's nothing you can do to become more perfect, more righteous. He says, only God can do that. And so I want to remind you, Corinth, before we get into all the crazy, that there's something even crazier. That you were called to be saints. And only God can do that. And he takes great pleasure in that. So I love this, that right out of the gate, that Paul wants them to remember what God has done in his own life, but also reminds them of what he has done in their life and who he has made them, even in spite of your stuff, your saints. So it causes me to stop in my own life and ask the question. Maybe it's not about me needing to know more information. See, as I begin to navigate and, and work through my own faith journey, I get to these places where I go, I need, I need new information. I need more information in order to really take my, my relationship, my intimacy with God to the next level. Maybe it's not about me needing new information. Maybe it's about me remembering the old information. Maybe it's about me remembering and embracing the old information that made me new in the first place. And this is where Paul starts. And it begins a cycle. Because here's what happens. I receive grace. I accept grace. I embrace grace. And I give grace. Then I remember that I received grace. I embrace grace. And I give grace. And then I'll get somehow drugged down. And guess what? I'll remember. This is what Paul's doing. He's just, remember, he's just jogging their memory. I remember I received grace. I embrace grace. And I give grace. I'm off track again. Remember, you received grace, embrace that grace, and give that grace. And we go, well, Jason, I'm just not sure if I know how to do this or can I do this. I mean, I mean, this is really hard. And I want you to know this, that Jesus will supply for whatever he requires. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 through 7, he says this. He says, I'm always thankful, my God, for you because of his grace given you in Jesus Christ. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack in any spiritual gift as you eagerly await our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Look at that language. He says you have been given grace. You have been supplied. You have been enriched. Christ is among you. He says, you don't lack in any gift. Again, he's telling them that I know that you're not in a good place, but grace is not dependent on you. You don't make God gracious. That's who he is. 
And Paul understands what is going to pull them out of, the things that he's going to write about, the things he's going to, what's going to pull them out of where they are currently, this funk, this mess, is grace. And grace is going to lead the way to not only transformation of self, it's going to lead to transformation of community. And not only that, it's what's going to sustain, it's what's going to maintain along the way. Guys, this is crazy stuff, and I hope that we, like Paul, are beginning to see that grace is not a theory, it's a person. That it's Jesus. That it's always going to be Jesus. It's Jesus who gives, it's Jesus who sustains, it's Jesus who maintains. It's Jesus who pursues you and chases you. See, guys, we don't find Jesus, Jesus finds us. And he'll find us in the messes. He'll find us in the places where we think we've gone too far. And he'll find others through you in places that you believe even. They've gone too far. That's the way Jesus works. I love that before I ever called on Jesus' name, he was already on his way. That's grace. And Paul says, listen, Corinth, I know you're not in a good place, but Jesus is going to come through. And just start remembering, start leaning into those things. I also see that grace is not a theory, but also begin to understand the theology. I'm using some churchy words this morning, so just bear with me. See, the theology of grace is not get up and run to Jesus. See, I think sometimes we think that's how we get in touch with, with grace, and we walk into some either our own personal stuff, and we say, you know what, I've got to get up. I've got to pull myself up and I've got to get to Jesus. Or we look at someone else and say, and we lead with these things. You need more Jesus. And so here's the way you're going to get more of Jesus. You're going to do this, 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 and this. And then Jesus, he says, listen, that's not the theology of grace. Grace is not get up and run to Jesus. Grace says that he's already carrying me. Grace says, I'm just waiting on you. To realize that I'm already carrying you and then live into it. It's not that you need to do more. It's not that you need to, to be smarter. He says, no. He says, it's, it's a matter of you embracing who it is that's already made you new. Then I love that Paul continues this and he removes one of the biggest obstacles that keeps them and it keeps so many of us from really living into this and moving forward. Look at verse 8. He will also keep you firm... And here it comes, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he does. He takes that word blameless and he says, don't forget that grace that I've already laid out for you in my own testimony, that I've already laid out for you in the way that I've called you and reminded you that Jesus sustained you and has called you to be a saint and that he's going to enrich you in every single way. He says grace also removes the guilt that's going to keep you from stepping into it. And I can't tell you how many times that guilt has kept me from living into what Jesus has for me. And how many times that you have probably said, I would love to, but I can't because there's just too much dirt. There's too much mess. There's too much stain. I am too guilty. And Paul says, well, let me go ahead and just remove that from you. Even though there's some things that you've got to maybe adjust and there's some things that God is not happy with, he says, but don't forget, he still has made a way for you to become blameless. Blameless. 